Good morning. I was not here last week. I understand you studied about the person of Reuben. And I thought it was very appropriate of Dave to start with the end. So we'll do the same again today. If you would, turn with me to Genesis chapter 49. If you remember reading about Reuben last week in verses 1 through 4, it was interesting to note it wasn't very much of a blessing, it was more of a statement of what Reuben was like. Reuben wasn't doing very well. Uh, perhaps the key word there in verse 4 was, unstable as water thou shalt not excel. That was a description of Reuben. He was unstable. He moved with the flow. He might appear more holy in a day where that pays off, but when it doesn't, he wasn't a particularly holy person. Well, let's look at Judah. We're skipping a couple of persons, Simeon and Levi. There isn't quite as much about them, and so we're going to continue with Judah over here in verse 8. Judah, you are he whom your brothers shall praise. There's a play on words there. Judah means praise. Judah, you are he whom your brothers shall praise. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's children shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He bows down, he lies down as a lion, and as a lion who shall rouse him. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the people. These are some great verses. Wouldn't you like this to be written about you? Talking about being praised, being uh, in position of uh, power, being ruler of his brethren from him, uh, through him would come the Messiah. These are, these are great verses. We want good things to be said about us. And someone might think, boy, at least one of Jacob's sons was a good guy. Well, not exactly. Let's go ahead and turn to the beginning. We'll uh, start in, in uh, chapter 37. It's, this is also a verse that we read last week. But it's not notice, you will pay attention here, you'll notice that the name of Judah comes up. The name of Judah will come up. So this was right after the brothers of Joseph took him and threw him in a pit. Uh, intending to kill him, Reuben convinces them to actually uh, put him in a pit with some hope of maybe rescuing, rescuing him later. So now he's in a pit. We'll pick up in verse 25, Genesis 37, verse 25. And they sat down to eat a meal. Then they lifted their eyes and looked. And there was a company of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels, bearing spices, balm and myrrh, on their way to carry them down to Egypt. So Judah said to his brothers, What profit is there if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come and let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother in our flesh. And his brothers listen. So that's Judah. So let's, let's uh, try to think of... of of what uh, this this story is talking about. This is his brother. 
and they were going to kill him. And now Judah comes up with a better plan, and he says, now let's just sail, sell him as a slave to go to Egypt. Well, some people look at this verse and say, look, Judah saved Joseph. What a good guy. Well, that's not really a good guy. If you're a good guy, you'll get me out of the pit and let me go back to my dad. Selling me as a slave to Egypt isn't so nice. And also, if you look at the verse, Judah isn't saying anything good about Joseph. He says, let not our hands be upon him. He doesn't want to be the one whose, whose hands are, so to speak, stained with the guilt of what was to be done with Joseph. And perhaps there was also a desire for profit out of it. As he tells his brothers, uh, what profit do we have if we kill him? Well, this way we can at least make some money. So first of all, we should eliminate any thoughts that we're talking about a good guy here. Okay, this is a guy who sold his brother into slavery. But it is interesting that he tries to think of himself as a good guy, right? He does say this, let not our hands be upon him. You know, he is our brother, flesh and blood. If, but if we do this, it will be wrong. It will be counted as sin against us. There was a recognition there in Judah that to kill Joseph would be something wrong. He doesn't want to be associated with that. We call this today self-righteousness. It's our effort of feeling good about ourselves. Judah wanted to feel good about himself. He figured if he's going to be the guy sticking the knife in Joseph, he may have a hard time feeling good about himself. But if he sells him as a slave to the Ishmaelites, they, whatever they do to him, well, his hands are somehow clean of the whole matter. Okay, that's his idea. It's interesting to me, everybody seems to have certain ideas of, of what's wrong to do, not acceptable, and what's okay to do. I have a friend that... Uh, doesn't seem to have much of a concept of, of honesty. He doesn't feel like he really has to tell people the truth. He can, you know, it's, if he can, he's a salesman, by the way. You know, if he, if he can sell something to somebody, you know, it's, it's just the way you have to do things, you know, to get, you know, your share of the world or whatever he thinks. But he is a vegetarian. He feels very strongly about being responsible for the death of other creatures. And he will not touch meat that he knows was cooked in the same pan that meat was cooked in. And this is really a conviction he has, that it's something that would be wrong to do. And that's, that's how we tend to be. There are certain things that we realize are wrong, oh, I'm not going to do those, and then we feel good about ourselves. At the same time, we're doing things that are not so good. Right, let me read a verse from the New Testament. I'll just read it and save you from having to turn there. This is the book of James. Sorry, I'm looking at the wrong page here. This is the book of James. See if you can recognize it. Whoever shall keep the law, the whole law, and yet stumble in one point, he is guilty of all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So this is God's standard of righteousness. If you want to feel good about yourself, if you want to be able to stand before God and say, I am righteous, you have to cover every point. The smallest law, and a lot of the laws are not something so gross as murder or uh, adultery. Something like pride is a sin. Something like lust is a sin. There's a lot of things. Unbelief, one of the greatest sins in the Bible. Not worshiping God, not loving Him with your whole heart 
that's a sin. So if you want to stand before God and consider yourself as righteous, you've got to cover the whole basis. As we see, Judah was very far from covering that whole basis, and yet he was trying to somehow feel good about himself. Let's continue with chapter 38. Chapter 38 is a great chapter. It really uh, talks all about Judah here. So if you want to learn about Judah, this is the chapter to look at. And we'll see that God is really pursuing Judah here, trying to make Judah realize, realize where he stands before God. So, chapter 38 in Genesis. It came to pass at that time that Judah departed from his brothers and visited a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira. And Judah saw there a daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. And he married her and went in to her. So she conceived and bore a son. And he called his name Ur. She conceived again and bore a son. And she called his name Onan. And she conceived yet again and bore a son. And called his name Shelah. He was at Keziv when she bore him. This is very interesting. It says here, It came to pass at that time that Judah departed from his brothers. Why? Why is Judah departing from his brothers? I think the key word here, it came to pass at that time. What time? It was the time when Judah and his brothers sold Joseph as a slave to Egypt. Why? Because Judah went home, and day after day he saw his father weeping over what he has done. And his sin was staring him in the face, and he couldn't take it. And so he left. This was a form of escape. It's something, again, one of those other things people do about sin, Sometimes they, they try to cover it with some sort of self-righteousness. He couldn't do it at this time. The other thing they tend to do is escape. They avoid it. They don't want to deal with it. God will bring somebody's sin right in front of him to show him that he is a sinner. And yet the person will do everything he can to avoid doing that. And in this case, what Judah had to do was flee. He effectively left his family and moved somewhere else where he wouldn't have to stare at his sin in the face. This is something else I'd like to turn to a passage in the New Testament. Again, I'll just read it. Matthew 5.23 says this, Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar, and go your way, first be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Agree with your adversary quickly, while you are on the way with him, lest your adversary deliver you to the judge. The judge hand you over to the officer, and you be thrown into prison. Assuredly, I say to you, you will by no means get out of there till you have paid the last penny. That was Matthew 23 through 26. What Jesus is telling us is this. If you remember that you have a sin, say you're even involved in something else, you're here, trying to offer a gift at the altar before God, and yet you remember that you have sinned against your brother, leave it. Go to your brother and take care of what you have done. This is the opposite of what Judah is doing here. Judah is fleeing. His sin is staring him in the face, and he's fleeing. He doesn't want to deal with it. Something we tend to do. And Jesus said, even if you are involved in something else and you remember you have sinned, go and take care of it. As we continued in the passage in verse 26, he said this, uh, 
Assuredly, I say to you, you will by no means get out of there till you have paid the last penny. It's interesting that Judah, while this is happening, that passage is over, it says that he was at Keziv when that happened. The word Keziv in Hebrew means deceit. Deceit. What Judah was doing, he was deceiving himself. He didn't like his sin because his sin made him feel that he was in trouble with God. And so he goes somewhere where the sin is not staring him in the face so he doesn't have to think about the fact he's in trouble with God. Well, that's a form of self-deceit. The fact we sinned against God stays there. It doesn't go away. It counts against us and we will be answerable for it. And so it's a form of self-deceit when I decide to ignore my sin and instead be somewhere where I, I don't think about my sin. I'm deceiving. My sin is still sitting over my head. There's a passage in the Bible that says, that as, as we continue in our life of sin, as God is pouring blessing upon us, the wrath of God is just piling up. There's a big thing that's piling over my head, and one day it will come down on me. It's a form of self-deceit when I try to avoid thinking about my sin, avoid dealing with my sin, as Judah is doing over here. And it's the grace of God that he pursues us and doesn't leave us in that particular state. So let's continue in chapter 38. We finished reading up to verse 5. Then Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord killed him. And Judah said to Onan, Go in to your brother's wife and marry her, and raise up an heir to your brother. But Onan knew that the heir would not be his. And it came to pass, when he went in to his brother's wife, that he emitted on the ground, lest he should give an ur to his brother. And the thing which he did displeased the Lord. Therefore he killed him also. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow in your father's house till your son Shelah is grown. For he said, Lest he also die like his brothers. And Tamar went and dwelt in her father's house. Uh, there's a so, so Tamar comes into the story, which, which figures largely in how God brings Judah to recognize his own sin. We see first she marries Judah's firstborn, whose name was Ur. And Ur dies, he's put to death. The Lord kills him because he's such a sinner, probably following in his father's footsteps. It really is a judgment and a warning against Judah over here. Then Judah tells what to us might seem strange these days because we don't have that custom. He tells his second born, Onan, go uh, marry your brother's wife and raise seed to your brother. Just to uh, read, <coughs> read a verse about it to those who are not familiar with it. Even though the law of Moses wasn't given yet, this wasn't the law of Moses. This was something that was good and that was right, even though we're not doing it today. <laughs> okay, that's, that's, In that culture, this, that was something that God wanted to be there. Let me read a verse from... Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 25 verses 5 and 6 if brethren this is the law of Moses he's telling to the Israelites this is what should be done if brethren dwell together and one of them die and have no child the wife of the dead shall not marry without unto a stranger her husband's brother shall go in unto her and take her to him to wife and perform the duty of an husband's brother unto her. And it shall be that the firstborn which she beareth 
shall succeed in the name of his brother which is dead, that his name be not put out of Israel. So this was a consideration. If, if you're a woman and you married a man, you're expected to produce children, those children will be the heirs of that man, which supports you as, as a woman in your old age. Really, you're counting, in those days particularly for a woman, it wasn't, uh, you didn't, wouldn't really have the ability of going and opening your own business or having a job to provide for yourself. You really, you were counting on that system. You will have a husband that will care for you. The husband will die. You'll have a son that will take care of you. That will be your inheritance. That will be your hope. And so, if your husband dies without producing an heir, it's the responsibility of his brother to come and take you as a wife. And the son, that, the firstborn that will be born out of that union will actually be considered the heir of the other brother. And that's basically your inheritance. That will be providing for you. Well, in her case, that's exactly what happened. Her husband died without giving, giving her any children, putting her in a difficult situation. She's now, she's no longer you know, young perhaps, she's no longer a virgin, she may not be des- desirable as a wife by anyone. Really, her only hope is having a son, which wasn't hers yet. And so, that's why Judah sends his secondborn Onan to her, saying, marry her, give her a seed to your brother, and then she will have that child. Well, Onan turns out to be just as bad as his brother and his father. He's thinking of number one. That's himself. What's going to happen if he gives a child to uh, Tamar. Well, that child will be the heir of his father. His father was the firstborn of Judah's house, and so the greater portion of the inheritance will fall for that child and for Tamar. Now, it would also be his child, but he doesn't look at it this way. He's like, I want really my son, the one that will come, that will have my name. I want him to have the great inheritance. What do I do? Well, I don't give Tamar an heir. That simple. If I save it for me, then... If she doesn't have one, I'm going to be the heir, official heir of Judah. So this is just pure selfishness. And so he pretends to be doing it. He is, he is treating her, behaving as if she's his wife, but he deliberately withholds from her the seed that's necessary to have a child. And so what happened? The Lord slew him too. Well, what I really want to pay attention to is what does Judah do about it? So here's Judah in the midst of all this. He's living his, his, his brothers. He's starting his own life somewhere. His sons are as wicked as he is. The Lord is starting to judge them. And Judah does this. Uh, let's go back to verse 11. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow in your father's house till my son Shelah is grown. For he said, Lest he also die like his brothers. And Tamar went and dwelt in her father's house. What he's basically saying with his lips is, Well, my son's not old enough to marry you, so go to your father's house. In his heart is saying this, if I let my son marry her, he's going to also do wicked things. He will also be judged. And so I'm going to withhold him from her. He's really avoiding judgment, which is the other thing we as people tend to do as, as God starts judging us for our sins and we sense the finger of God in our lives. Our first instinct is to, to try to avoid the lightning bolt, you know, the judgment that's coming upon us. Well, that's not what God is trying to produce. God wants us to see our sin for what it is and to repent of that sin. He's not trying to get us to, to dodge bullets. He's trying to get us to recognize that what we are are sinful people. And as we see, even as Judah is trying to maneuver here 
away from the judgment of God, he's just continuing to sin. He's basically doing the same thing his son did. He's robbing Tamar of what was rightfully hers. She should be included in the family. She should have an heir to herself. And he's basically robbing her. I mean, he's saying, oh, when my son is gone, I'll give him to you. He, he doesn't plan to do that. that. That's just a sham. He, he wants her to go away. He's like, you know, you're not good for this family. You go away. And he's basically leaving her destitute with what he's doing for her. She has her father right now. Well, her father will die one day. But who will provide for tomorrow when that happens? So Judah is doing really here, continuing with this sin, with sin dominating the passage. All right, well, praise God, he's not done with Judah. He's not done with Judah. Let's pick up in verse 12. Now, in the process of time, the daughter of Shua, Judah's wife, died. And Judah was comforted and went up to his sheep shearers at Timnah, he and his friend Hira, the Adulamite. And it was told to Tamar, saying, Look, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep. So she took off her widow's garments, covered herself with a veil, and wrapped herself, and sat in an open place which was on the way to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah was grown, and she was not given to him as wife. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a harlot, because she had covered her face. Then he turned to her, by the way, and said, Please let me come into you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. So she said, What will you give me that you may come in to me? And he said, I will send a young goat from the flock. So she said, Will you give me a pledge till you send it? Then he said, What pledge shall I give you? So she said, Your signet and cord and your staff that is in your hand. Then he gave them to her and went in to her, and she conceived by him. So she arose and went away and laid aside her veil and put on the garments of her widowhood. And Judah sent the young goat by the hand of his friend, the Adulamite, to receive his pledge from the woman's hand. But he did not find her. Then he asked the men of that place, saying, Where is the harlot who was openly by the roadside? And they said, There was no harlot in this place. So he returned to Judah and said, I cannot find her. Also the men of that place said, There was no harlot in this place. Then Judah said, let her take from them for herself. Let, let her take them for herself, lest we be shamed. For I sent this young goat, and you have not found her. And it came to pass about three months later that Judah was told, saying, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has played the harlot. Furthermore, she is with child by harlotry. So Judah said, Bring her out and let her be burned. When she was brought out, she sent to her father-in-law, saying, by the man to whom these belong, I am with child. And she said, Please determine whose these are, the signet and cord and staff. So Judah acknowledged them and said, She has been more righteous than I, because I did not give her to Shelah, my son. And he never knew her again. When, uh, uh, trying to remember where it was, I think I was in a bookstore and uh, looking at the books that they have on the display, the bestsellers, and there was a book said something like, you know, the hidden stories of the Bible, or the stories that people don't want you to know are in the Bible. And, and this was considered one of them, because here you have uh, Judah, who some people consider the godly man, and uh, it's just a story of, of sin. There's no question about it. This, uh, Judah is, is committing uh, harlotry with, with Tamar, his daughter, 
daughter-in-law. And uh, it's, today we might use the word fornication, or actually we don't use that word, that's not a PC word. We would probably use various other words, but this was sin. This was uh, people who were just like we are. This is why we're, we're really starting in the Old Testament. We started with this verse in the New Testament saying all these things were written for our learning. The idea that the Bible is this book about holy people who were trying to follow their example is a sham. The Bible is full of sinful people like you and me. And the stories is laid out for us to read that we might learn because we are sinners like they are. And the, the sins that they fall into and the lessons they learn from those sins apply to our lives as well. So the Bible isn't trying to hide anything. That's what, you know, people today sometimes try to hide it and other people try to make money out of that fact. But the truth is that the Bible just lays it out. We're talking here about two sinners. One of them is the greater sinner, which Judah recognizes to be himself. And the important thing is God is using this to reveal to Judah his own sin. Okay, with that introduction, let's look at the passage very briefly. Uh, Judah's wife died, and he runs into a harlot, we might say prostitute, across the way, at least what he thought, thinks is such. He's doing what the Bible says is wrong. Uh, the, a sexual relationship belongs between a husband and, and his wife, and doesn't belong outside of it. Judah is going outside of it and commits harlotry or fornication, or whatever you want to call it. And... Uh, Later, he learns that his daughter-in-law, Tamar, has apparently been committing harlotry because you know, she's pregnant, and that doesn't just happen uh, by itself. And she wasn't married, obviously, to his son yet. And he apparently has the right of judging her because as his father, her father-in-law, she belongs to his family, even though he basically sent her away from his family. And his opinion, well, she committed harlotry, let her be burned. That's the judgment that should fall upon people that do terrible things like that. That's what he was saying. Well, very interesting. The story turns around uh, as, as we go back and we look to see what really happened with Tamar. Well, Tamar was beginning to realize that Judah wasn't going to give her his third son to be her husband. She, this is what she was counting on, if you would, for her retirement. Today, retirement is a big thing. Everybody wants to provide for their retirement. Well, this was her hope. And Judah was keeping it away from her. And she came up with this really bold plan. I'm really, the more, the more I look at it, the more you can see the guts that this woman had. And she, so she comes up with this plan of, of basically seducing Judah. She's not seducing him. She's just on his way, if you would, like a harlot. And hoping that he takes advantage of it, which he does. And then she very cleverly asks him for, for a token to, that he will pay her for the services rendered. And that token is nothing but his signet, probably, I'm guessing, some sort of a, a thing he would use to sign things to show it was really him, a cord and a staff. And now at this particular time, where Judah has rendered judgment, let her be burned, she says, well, okay, but you shouldn't just judge me, right? You should judge the person who's did it with me. So I'm going to help you out. I'll give you these items that I have, record of who was the other person guilty of this sin. And Judah looks at them, and it's his. And he realized he said that she should be burned. Well, that same, the same judgment is on him. When In the Bible, in, in the law of Moses, 
If a man's found with a woman committing fornication, it's not just her that gets stoned, he should get stoned too. So, he, right there, he's just as guilty as her. But he says this, it's interesting, he says, she is more righteous than I, because I did not give her Shelah, my son, to be her husband. You see, he didn't just commit the harlotry himself, he was the one who induced her into committing it. She would have never done that if it wasn't for the fact that her retirement, her livelihood depended upon it. She did it because that's what, what she deserved. She deserved to have a seed coming from that family in which she could count. And so she is more righteous than Judah is. And it seems like small words. We recently, uh, my wife and I watched a documentary about NASA and they landed the man on the moon and he said this famous phrase, it's a small step for man but a great step for mankind or something like that, a great leap for mankind. Well, it seems like just small words coming out of Judah's mouth. She is more righteous than I. But that was a great leap for him because he finally accepted who he was. He was a sinner before God. And it's because of not those words, but the fact he truly recognized at that moment he was a sinner. He no longer could escape from his sin. He faced it. He accepted it. That those verses we read about him at the end of Genesis apply to him. Remember we read about you are the one whom your brothers shall praise. You'll be the one ruling over them. It's from you the Messiah is going to come. It really comes down to that admission, confession of sin. Now, it wasn't just those words. His life turned around, as we will look. But it was because of his recognition of himself as a sinner that God could take his life and turn him around. I've been recently reading in... Uh, and the New Testament in the book of John about Jesus' discussions with the Jews of his time. Uh, let's turn, if you would, look at uh, one verse there, or a couple of verses there. This is John chapter 8. And starting at verse 31, we're, we're kind of picking up in the middle. We don't have time to go through the long discussion, but I commend it to your reading because I, the few verses I pick may not convince you of what I'm saying. But if you really look at the discourse, it becomes plain that that's what's going on. Verse 31, John chapter 8, Then Jesus said to the Jews who believed him, If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed. And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. They answered him, We are Abraham's descendants, and have never been in bondage to anyone. How can you say you will be made free? Jesus answered them, Most assuredly I say to you, Whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. And a slave does not abide in the house forever, but a son abides forever. Therefore, if the son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. Jesus is here promising those who follow him freedom. And, and the people who were listening to him basically rejected it, threw him in his face. What do you mean free? You're telling me I'm not free right now? And Jesus says, well, yes. You're not free right now. Whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. We have this uh, often idea, well, I committed the sin, but I'm not such a bad guy. I, I walk some women across the street, old women across the street sometime, and or we hide from sin, or we avoid judgment, just like Judah did. 
and we refuse to accept the fact that I myself am a sinner under judgment by God. And Jesus is trying to wake them up to that fact in this passage. And this is just one verse, but it goes back and forth, back and forth. Jesus is trying to speak to them and make them realize, look, you are a sinner that needs to be saved. And they're like, uh-uh, you're not talking about me over here. We're, we're the descendants of Abraham. We've never been in bondage to anyone. And he's saying, whoever commits a sin is a slave of sin. It's not just that you committed the sin. By committing the sin, you've demonstrated what you are like. You are a sinner. That's what you are. You need to be set free. And only the Son can set you free. As you read through the Gospel, it becomes evident. The great reason the Jews killed Jesus, rejected Jesus, and if you would, murdered him on the cross, was because of this. He kept telling them that they were sinners that needed to be saved. They came up with other excuses. They said, well, he was claiming to be God, which he was. But lots of people claim to be God. I come from Berkeley. People stand you know, on barrels and will say all kinds of things about them, and you ignore them. You say they're crazy. I don't care about that person. But Jesus stood before them and accused them of sin. Not of sin, but of being sinners. And it was that, trying to escape from this accusation of being sinners, that they finally killed him. Why was Jesus trying to convince them so hard that they were sinners? Let me read one verse from Romans 10, Romans 10:3. For they being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness have not submitted to the righteousness of God. They being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness have not submitted themselves to the righteousness of God. Jesus came to save them. He came to save people from their sins. But because they had such a poor view of God's righteousness and they thought they could somehow meet the standard by some manipulations and good works that they were doing, they, that's what they were trying to do. They tried to justify themselves. They tried to make themselves feel good about themselves and hope that that somehow will get them to heaven. And as long as they did not, as long as they did that, they did not submit themselves to the righteousness of God. God came offering free salvation, free righteousness to everyone who turns to the Lord and calls, calls upon the name of the Lord to be, to be saved, will be saved. That's what the Bible says. And yet as long as I think that my righteousness is good enough and I offer it to the Lord, filthy rags though it be, I will not receive that salvation. And that's why Jesus worked so hard knowing it will result in rejection and death, to try to open their eyes to the fact they were sinners because that's what they needed to realize about themselves. That's what people need to realize about themselves today. They, they will fight it tooth and nail. I met with a, a man for about a year trying to, to present the gospel with him, going slowly from the beginning of the Old Testament all the way to the New Testament. And yet there always was this sense that there's something I can do to save myself. And refusal to accept the fact that he was a sinner. And even if he came to accept it, by the next week he seemed to forget about it. It's just not a state we like to be in. We don't want to see ourselves as sinners. But that's what we need to be in order to be saved. In order to turn to God and ask, please save us. Please save us. Let's finish chapter 38. Back to Genesis 38. 
Now it came to pass, verse 27, Now it came to pass at the time for giving birth that, behold, twins were in her womb. And so it was when she was giving birth that the one put out his hand, and the midwife took a scarlet thread and bound it on his hand, saying, This one came out first. Then it happened, as he drew back his hand, that his brother came out unexpectedly. And she said, How did you break through? This breach be upon you. Therefore his name was called Perez. Afterward his brother came out, who had the scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was called Zerah. Bill used to say this. He used to say there's a scarlet thread that goes through the Old Testament to the New. And what he was talking about is there's this reference to Jesus or to, to the Messiah and what the Messiah was going to do kind of sprinkled through the Old Testament. And I think this is one of those uh, places that idea is taken, taken from. There's a scarlet thread. Uh, uh, Tamar is now giving birth. She happens to have had twins. My wife is pregnant. Pray it's not twins. And, uh, and he, puts, he put his hand through and uh, uh, the first child, and you expect that child will come out. And the midwife might have been clever enough to realize, well, maybe it's not going to happen, so I'm going to tie, tie something on his hand so we know this is the one that was coming out first. So he ties this scarlet thread on his hand. And it, it ends out, he doesn't come out first, his brother, other brother makes it through. And uh, his name is Peretz, and if you would turn to the New Testament, you will see that this is the line of Christ. Uh, we, we looked at the promise of the Messiah. It was going to come from Abraham, then from Isaac, then from Jacob. Now we see it's Judah, and it's Judah's sons, Peretz, which is great. Now, what I really liked about this passage is the name Peretz. And you'll ask me, why do you like it? Are you going to name your son Peretz? No, I, it's not why I like it, and I'm not planning to name my son Peretz, <laughs> if it is a son. Peretz means what this passage suggests. It's breaking through. It's actually used three times in that same verse in the Hebrew. He said, how did you break through? The breakthrough, the, the word is Peretz. This breach be upon you. The word breach is Peretz. And of course, therefore his name was called Peretz. And to me, it's such a wonderful picture of what the Lord is doing in this passage. Uh, Judah's life, see how, we see how Judah is just trying to avoid his sin. He's a sinner, like the rest of us are, but he tries to avoid it in every way conceivable. And God really has to break through to him, to show him his sin. Uh, reminds me, uh, looking at what happened to Judah, he reminds me of what God does with uh, King David after his sin with Bathsheba. And he sends to him a prophet, and the prophet starts telling him a story about a shepherd. And, uh, or a man that had a sheep, and somebody else came and took his sheep. And, Judah, and, and David says, you know, as I live, this man deserves to die. And then the prophet turns to David and says, you are the man. You are the man. And that's how, when David becomes convicted of his sin with Bathsheba. He does the same thing with Judah here. Judah here, you know, this woman deserves to be burnt. And she basically points to him. You're the one who did it with me. You're guilty. So in the same way, God really convicts, gets through here to Judah. Now, one of the other reasons I like the word Peretz is recently I've been interested in uh, revivals. Somebody sent me an email, and the email had the link to a website, and the website had uh, a message I really appreciated. And that message talked about some, some uh, history of revivals. We, 
You've all heard the word revivals. I mean, a, a kind of a new generation here. There might be people here from an older generation that may have seen revivals, or perhaps at least new people who've, who've been through periods of revivals. These were real uh, historical movements. If, if you uh, look at this, th there's no question that revivals happen. Uh, you'll find the records in the newspapers. You'll see changes in the crime rate. We talked this morning about uh, what policemen are supposed to do and how policemen are supposed to keep the peace. Well, in some places, because of the revivals, the police were out of work. Somebody came and, and, and proposed lowering the number of policemen in the city because you didn't need all of them, because the people in that area were so changed by the revival that you just didn't need it. So, so I, I got kind of excited, and I enjoyed listening to, to more messages about revivals. And I've asked myself the question, can the Lord do a revival today? And can the Lord use me? Can the Lord use me in a revival today? And uh, there's some interesting things you see in revivals, if you look into revivals, why revivals happen. And one thing you always see is prayer. Prayer is a dominant feature. It often starts with a small group of people. You know, there's a man, he's really feel moved to do something, to see God's reviving his people. He just gets a few friends together and they start praying and pretty soon the prayer meetings multiply, other people join in and you have a mostly, most of a city praying. And that, that's when you usually see revivals happen. It's the result of prayer. The other thing I, I noticed about prayer, about revivals, and, and that's something that I wasn't quite expecting, I heard about the prayer, is that usually when revival started, it didn't start with an overflowing feeling of joy among the people. It started with an overwhelming sense of sin among the people. The Spirit of God has come down, and people were sensitive of their sin. Mostly believers, people that were in churches, but the Spirit was so overflowing that people on a, a dance floor a mile away were convicted of sin, and they came to that church and sought salvation. But what it made me realize is what God really needs in order to be able to use people is a sense of their own sinfulness. It's not just for people to be saved that people need to be uh, sensitive to their sin. It's for people to be mightily used by God, believers. There has to be a consciousness of sin. Because our sin is keeping us apart from God. We, I'm not talking about a relationship, but we weren't saved to have a relationship with God. We were saved to have fellowship with Him. We were saved to have God in our lives. And the power of God used through us to touch others. And when there's sin in my life, and I, I doesn't have to talk about what we consider big sins, such as murder and adultery, it can be a sin of unbelief. It can be a sin of fear. It can be a sin of selfishness. All these things in my life that are displeasing to God are straining our fellowship and preventing the power of God from working through me and changing the lives of others. So for me to really be used by God in these revivals I enjoy listening about, but am I willing to be part of them? It's really a sense, am I willing to have God come into my life and show me my sin and walk with him and as sin comes up confess it because I'm not expecting to stop sinning but I expect to have fellowship with God 
which means every time a sin comes in my life, I must confess it. I must turn it over to the Lord so I can continue to have that fellowship. And through that fellowship, the power that comes from God. That's what God's been speaking to me about that. Let's look to finish, uh, finish the passage about Judah. I promise you we will see that there was a change in his life. So turn with me, if you would, to Genesis chapter 45. Genesis 45 and verse 30. Just to make sure you realize we are talking about... I'm sorry, Genesis chapter 44. Genesis 44 and verse 30. Just... A quick look at verse 18 to know this is Judah speaking. Then Judah came near to him and said, O my Lord, please let your servant speak a word in my Lord's hearing and do not let your anger burn against your servant for you are even like Pharaoh. So this is Judah. He is approaching Joseph. He sees in Joseph just the Lord of Egypt. He doesn't know it's Joseph. And there's one thing on his heart because Judah has promised Jacob that he will bring his son Benjamin back to him. And they've gone down to Egypt to bring food back to the family after the famine. And now Benjamin has been found with something belonging to Joseph or the Lord of Egypt in his possession. The Lord of Egypt said, now Benjamin will be my slave. He is going to stay here. The rest of you go up to your father. Benjamin is staying here with me. And there's one thing on the mind of Judah. And what can he do to save his brother Benjamin? And really, he's really thinking about his father, Jacob. What can I do to save my father, Jacob, from this grief? and probably death that's going to come if he sees what happens to Benjamin. Remember, this is the same Judah who years before said, ah, for 20 shekels, I'll sell my brother as a slave to Egypt. And, you know, if my father is going to mourn about it, well, he deserves that because he liked Joseph better than the rest of us. This is the same Judah. Well, listen to him now in verse 30. Now, therefore, when I come to your servant, my father, and the lad is not with us, since his life is bound up in the lad's life, it will happen when he sees that the lad is not with us, that he will die. So your servants will bring down the gray hair of your servant, our father, with sorrow to the grave. For your servant became surety for the lad to my father, saying, If I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father forever. Now, therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the lad as a slave to my Lord, and let the lad go up with his brothers. For how shall I go up to my father if the lad is not with me, lest perhaps I see the evil that should come upon my father? This is a different Judah. This is not the same Judah. And this is exactly what God wants to do in your life and my life. Instead of us being concerned chiefly for number one, that's me, (laughs) to be concerned for others. And to be willing to sacrifice ourselves for the good of others. We look at this picture and say, boy, this is a picture of Jesus. It is. Right? Jesus saw us and the terrible thing that was going to happen to us as we would have to face our sins before him in judgment. And Jesus said, I prefer to take their place that they might walk free. And here Judah is doing the same thing for Benjamin. Benjamin is going to be a slave for Pharaoh or for Joseph. And Judah is saying, let me be the slave. Let him go free. And you ask, is this a coincidence? Is it a coincidence 
that Judah is acting in a way so similar to Joseph? I say no. No, that's exactly what God wanted to produce in Judah's life. It's a Christ-likeness. It's what God wants to produce in our lives. He wants to save us from our selfishness and make us like his son, giving of ourselves to others, because that's what God is like. That's what he loves to say. And so if we're willing to turn ourselves to God, ask him to look into our hearts and show us our sin and say, take my life and let it be what you want it to be, this is what God is going to do with it. He's going to take our lives and make us more like Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this great love for us. We look at you indeed as the great parents, the one who break through, breaks through our sin, our lack of desire for you in our lives. And we say thank you, Father. Thank you for loving us so much that you were not willing to let us remain in our sin and in ignorance until the day of judgment, but woke us up to our sins that we might cry out, save us, Lord. We pray for anyone here who hasn't yet cried out to you that they will cry out. And for the rest of us, Lord, how we wish to be used by you, how we wish that if there's anything in our lives that separates us from you and from the power of God in our lives, we ask that you might show it to us, that we might confess it and come to you and say, Lord, let your life shine through us. Let us not be what we are on our own, in our own nature, but be who you are and what you want to make out of our lives. We ask these things in the name of him who died to make that happen. In Jesus' name, amen.